will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. of the passion that Dr. King just spoke about. Look around you for a minute. I mean that. Look around you for a minute. We at Hope have the opportunity to celebrate the diversity that Dr. King was so passionate about. Last weekend, I had a a very unique privilege. It was an incredible experience. Some of you have heard me talk about it already. I, I preached last weekend for a dear friend of mine who was celebrating his 25th anniversary in ministry at his church. And all month long, they're bringing in guest speakers. And it was Bartholomew Orr. Some of you remember Bartholomew preached for us last year. He pastors a church, runs about 5,000 people in South Haven, Mississippi. It is an all-African-American church. And let me tell you, last weekend, I had me some church last weekend. I mean, there was a point in the service, I'm not making this up. People were literally running around the building. We had church last weekend. I mean, it was something else. But let me tell you what I did. I told them about you. I told them about you because here's what I told them. At our church, we get to look like what heaven's going to look like. Because in our church, as Julia said a minute ago, every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every people, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, Polynesian, coming together where the ground is level at the foot of the cross, all redeemed children of God, we get to celebrate that. The passionate plea of one man, Dr. Martin Luther King, literally changed a nation. And this weekend, our country is celebrating his life and his legacy. But as the pastor of a multicultural church, I thank God for his legacy today. I thank God that we get to celebrate the beauty of what we get to celebrate here at Hope. And, and let me just say, this isn't part of the sermon, but let me just make this point as a side note here. If you don't know this, demographers tell us that by the year 2043, that's 30 years, by the year 2043, there will be no majority population in America anymore. 
by the year 2043, there will be no majority population. So here's, what, here's what's important that we understand. If we as the church in America do not unlock the key to multicultural expressions of worship, we will not be able to reach not only the world, we won't be able to reach our own nation. So here's where that's exciting, and I want to, again, this isn't in the sermon. We're going to get to that, but here's where I want to challenge us today. God has positioned us as a church that is multicultural. Best we can tell, over 30 languages spoken in our fellowship alone. A church that is every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. God is positioning us to be a leader and an example to others to experience multicultural worship in a way that honors the gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ and accomplishes the mission to the nations. So that's a challenge for us today as we celebrate on this historic weekend. But there's another motive for why I shared that video with you today. The other motive for why I shared that video is because of what I want to talk to you about today. I want to preach to you today out of some verses that are very familiar to you, more than likely. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 are very familiar verses to many Christians. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. How many of you have heard those verses before? Well, we've heard those verses so many times that we just kind of read over them like, therefore I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God to present. But I want you to understand something. As Paul said that, it was a passionate plea like what you saw Dr. King doing just a moment ago. There was passion in Paul's voice. He said, I urge you. That little phrase, I urge, in the Greek language literally means that it's as if Paul was on his knees begging children of God. There was a passion. He's begging us as believers to live out verses 1 and 2. This passionate plea that Paul gives us begins with one little word. It's the word, therefore. Therefore. Romans 12, 1. Now, you've heard me say it, Hope, many times to the point that you think it's corny, and it is corny, but you remember it. Anytime you see the word therefore, you need to look and see what it's there for, right? Because the word therefore is an important word in the New Testament. It's a word that means, based on what I've just said, now I want to draw this conclusion or make this challenge. Now, when Paul uses the word therefore in chapter 12, it is a really big therefore because it's referring to chapters 1 through 11 in the book of Romans. And if you're a student of the book of Romans, there's a whole lot in chapters 1 through 11 of the book of Romans. But this is a, a turning point in the letter where Paul has been speaking theologically and now he's going to begin to give a practical challenge based on all the theology that he's just laid out in chapters 1 through 11. So, therefore, what is he referring to? Well, 
Let me try to give you a 30-second summary of the book of Romans, and I'm going to do it great disservice today by doing it in 30 seconds. But here's the big picture. In chapters 1 through 4 of the book of Romans, Paul is laying down the foundation that all of us are sinners before God, and there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. Kind of the crescendo of that is Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, where Paul said, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul lays down the biblical conviction, the theological truth, that every one of us, every human being on planet earth, has sinned against God. We've broken God's laws. And it doesn't matter how moral we try to be. doesn't matter how religious we try to become. doesn't matter how many good deeds we do. There's nothing we can do to change the fact that we have sinned against God. And because of our sin against God, we deserve eternity separated from God. Thank God he didn't stop with chapter 4 of the book of Romans. Amen? Otherwise, the good news would just be bad news, right? But the gospel's not bad news. The gospel's good news. And the good news is in Romans chapter 5 through chapter 11, Paul tells us that God did for us in Christ what we could not do left to ourselves. Jesus came, took on human flesh, lived a sinless life, offered himself on the cross for our sins. Jesus paid the penalty for our sins, rose again from the dead. And now Paul said in in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He made salvation possible for us in Christ. Then you get to Romans chapter 8 verse 1. And in Romans chapter 8 verse 1, Paul says, therefore, this is a great verse, there is now, what's the next word? Say it out loud. No. That's a good no. Amen. No is not always good, but it's good right here. There is therefore now. What is it? No. No what? condemnation to us who are what in Christ Jesus here's what that means I was a sinner separated from God deserving of eternity separated from God God in Christ came into the world died on the cross for my sin rose again from the dead made it possible for me to be forgiven now when I'm in Christ by faith having surrendered the control of my life to Jesus there is therefore now no condemnation I've been declared right with God my eternity with him is secure I am settled in him not because of anything that I did but because of everything that Jesus did amen now chapter 12 verse 1 therefore that's a big therefore Therefore, Paul's saying, based on who you are in Christ, I'm begging you on the mercy of God to live out of the overflow of who you are. In Christ. C.E.B. Cranfield said this about this verse. He said, It's the earnest appeal based on the gospel is to those who are already believers to live consistently with the gospel they have received. That's the big transition of chapter 12. Paul says, Holy is who you are. Holy is what you are becoming. 
Now with all the passion he can muster, Paul says, I'm begging you. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Let's put both verses up on the screen. I want you to hear what they say. Paul says, therefore. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. I want you to hear the passion in his voice as Paul exhorts us to live out the practical holiness that is who we now are in Christ. All month long as a church family, we have been in a series that we simply entitled, Search Me, O God. And all month long, we've been on this journey, this pursuit of practical holiness and what it looks like. We've been doing daily devotionals together. Hope you've been following along around this theme of holiness. And as we bring this series to a close, heading into our big climax next weekend of our two-day worship experience, I want to leave you with a couple of realities that Paul gives us here. If you and I are going to walk in practical holiness, there are two realities that I want to leave you with. Here's the first one. If you and I are going to walk in practical holiness, there is a daily surrender that must take place. There is a daily surrender. Say those two words with me. Daily surrender. Say it again. Daily surrender. If you and I are going to walk in practical holiness, it's a daily Surrender. Paul says, I beg you on behalf of God to present your bodies. The way this is constructed here, it describes not a once and for all presentation, but an ongoing, continuous, daily presentation of our bodies. The word present here is a word that Paul borrowed from the sacrificial system. The Jews would have been very familiar with this word. It's a a word that described the priest taking the lamb or the goat or the dove and the priest would take that animal and he would present that animal on the altar. And the presenting of that animal on the altar was the surrendering of the life of that animal. 
It was the yielding up of the life. What was about to happen was that animal was about to be put to death as a sacrifice. This word present means to to yield up, to surrender. And Paul is now speaking to us about who we are in Christ because of all that God's done for us. Paul says daily we must yield the control of our bodies to Jesus. We must allow Jesus to sit on the throne of our lives and be the Lord of every minute detail of our body. You see, we are great at compartmentalizing. We've gotten good at it. We'll give God some and hang on to other things. Oh, Lord, I I surrender to you this time called my quiet time when I'm alone with you, God. It's all yours. Or my time when I'm at worship or my time when I'm at small group. But what Paul is teaching us here is that he wants it all. Our hands, our feet, our thoughts. Our actions, our reactions, our desires, our emotions, our pleasures. In Romans chapter 6, Paul said it this way, and I'm going to give it to you in the New Living Translation. I love the way they worded this. This is what it says. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead... Give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Now, have in your mind this picture of the priest with the animal, laying it on the altar. Here's what Paul says. Daily. I'm to present my body. You say, what does that look like? How how do you do that? Well, let me tell you how I do it personally. Clyde Cranford, who I've told you about, who mentored me, this this is something that he taught me that has been very powerful in my life. Every morning, and I say every don't, don't ever hear me say that and think I'm perfect. I'm not, all right? I, I miss days like you do and I'll forget. But the routine and pattern of my life is to daily, at some point in my time alone with the Lord, go through this. Where I say, Lord, today, God, I give you my hand. Lord, I give you my feet. God, I give you my arms and my legs, my heart. God, I give you my mind today. See, that's the one for me. See, we can can give all this and we can let our mind play in some dark places. Let's just be honest. We can keep it up out here, but we can let our mind get in some dark corners and live in some worlds that it doesn't belong. God, today I give you my mind. 
Lord, today I give you my emotion, my passion, my desire, my pleasure. And then I'll say something like, Lord, you know today, you know today I'm going to be tempted to pick it back up. But God, would you give me the grace today to just keep putting it back on the altar? If you think walking down an aisle four, five, eight, ten, twelve years ago, praying a prayer and embracing Jesus, now you can just be holy. If you think that's all there was to it, Paul says, hey, that's true. He took 11 chapters to point that out, that we're now right with God. But now he's on his knees saying, I'm begging you daily. Present your body. Clyde said this. Look at it on the screen. He said, this presenting of the body is the most strategic thing we can do as Christians. It is the crucial link between positional holiness and practical holiness. Hence, the day-to-day living out of our lives in holiness hinges on this transaction between ourselves and God. Why does this need to be done daily? (laughs) Can I be honest with you? For me, it's more than daily. There's a big oxymoron in verse 1. You know what it is, right? Living sacrifice. You know what sacrifice usually implies, right? Dead. The lamb was placed on the altar. It did not turn out good for the lamb. The lamb died there, right? The goat, the dove, whatever was put on the altar died. Living sacrifice. You know the problem with a living sacrifice, right? We can crawl off the altar. And moment by moment throughout the day, that's what happens. We we crawl off the altar. And that's why Paul says here, we must continuously, moment by moment, surrender the control of our lives to Jesus. And in those moments throughout the day, when I pick it back up, immediately as the Spirit of God in that still small voice begins to bring conviction, my response is to immediately turn that back over and surrender that to the control of Jesus Christ. Listen, you and I will never walk in practical holiness until we begin to live out a daily surrender of our bodies, our lives to Jesus. And listen to what Paul says. That is worship. We think we've come here to worship. Paul says in verse 1, I urge you, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. This is your spiritual service of worship. Listen to what William Barclay said. He said, real worship is the offering of everyday life to God. Real worship is not transacted in a church. 
Real worship is something which sees the whole world as the temple of the living God and every common deed is an act of worship. You know why this has significance? Because this is the crescendo of a life of worship. Which a life of worship is a moment-by-moment surrendering of my life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And when I'm living that way, I get to come in here on Sunday and I get to celebrate all that God is doing in my life. You know what that means? Here's what that means. You've got just as much of an opportunity to worship at your job as you do here. That'll change your attitude about going to work, right? You're not going to work. Listen, you're going to worship. You're not going to Walmart. You're going to worship. That's the truth. When you're at work, Somebody does something, says something, and everything in your flesh riles up, and you want to begin to gossip or attack, or you want to come against. Let me tell you what that's a moment to do. That's a moment to surrender your mouth, your mind, your heart, your emotion. You know what that became? That just became a worship service right there in the middle of the day at work. You know the first place worship was ever used in the Bible? As a word. First place it's ever used in the Bible. You need to know something. There was no band. There was no preacher. There were no seats. First place worship ever used in the Bible is in the 22nd chapter of the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 22. Abraham had waited all his life, 99 years, to receive the promise of God. God had promised Abraham a son. And in that son, God had promised Abraham the blessing of a nation. God had promised to bless the peoples of the earth through that son. And God finally gave Abraham the son. In Genesis 22, verse 2, listen what it says. God came to Abraham, and here's what he said. Take now your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I'll tell you. Can you imagine how that message must have conflicted with everything Abraham had wrapped his heart up? God had promised to change the world through this son. And now God says, Abraham, I want you to take that son. I want you to take him to a mountain and I want you to sacrifice him for me. Verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and Some people read this like Abraham's Superman, like he woke up early, couldn't wait to obey God. Let me tell you why he woke up early, because he didn't sleep all night. He was human like you and me. Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, and Isaac, his son, he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the lad will go over there and we will say it. First place worship's ever used in the Bible. They weren't going up there to sing, How Great is Our God. 
Abraham was going up there to surrender everything that he had. Now, we don't have time to read the rest of the story, but God provided. He spared his son. He gave him a ram in the, in the bush there that had been caught, and they sacrificed that ram, and it became a beautiful expression of what was going to happen one day when God would send his son to die in our place. It's a great picture of the gospel. But worship is about surrender. If you and I are going to walk in practical holiness, there is a daily surrender that must take place. Number two, we've got to move through this quick. If you and I are going to walk in practical holiness, there's a daily struggle that will take place. Some people have the wrong idea about holiness. They think if I'm holy, then I won't have to deal with sin in my life anymore. They think that there's this state of holiness or sainthood that you reach. Listen, if you ever meet anybody that says they've reached that, just run. Just run. It's not what the Word teaches. Not only is there a daily moment-by-moment surrender, but let me tell you something. There's a struggle. Let me give you a reality today. Look at this on the screen. Walking in holiness doesn't mean the absence of sin. Walking in holiness does mean the presence of a struggle. Can I be real honest with you today as your pastor? Because sometimes you tend to look up here at whoever's teaching the Word of God and you look at us through the filter of only knowing us up here. And we can look pretty good up here. I struggle like you struggle. I got areas in my life that I have to battle daily. Some of those areas in my life I have to battle moment by moment. Some of those things from our past that we allowed to take root in our lives before Christ. You can't undo those from your memory and your mind and the enemy and our flesh can take those things and Begin to wear us out. Listen, if you and I are going to walk in holiness, we need to wake up to the reality that until Jesus comes again, there is going to be a daily struggle. And I'm saying that to you today to say this. Don't think you are some kind of an alien because you struggle. Don't you show up here on Sunday and look at everybody with their church face on and think everybody else has got it together and you're the only one. Listen, we're all in the same struggle. But what I want you to understand today is that in Christ, you and I don't have to live under the struggle. We can live in victory over the struggle because holy is who we are. Christ can set us free. There's going to be the struggle. So there are two sides to it. First side of the struggle, Paul says in verse 2, is do not be conformed. Do not be conformed to this world. J.B. Phillips says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. It's a pretty good word. We live in a world that is constantly trying to shape us into its mold and 
the sad reality is that our flesh is often enticed and led astray by the, by the wooing of the world. But what Paul is saying here is we don't have to stay there. This phrase, don't be conformed to the things of this world, is a phrase that, that really describes moment by moment repentance. Repentance is not a bad word, it's a good word. And Paul here is describing, and, and this don't be conformed, again, it's, it's in the, the, the tense of ongoing continuous action. It's not a once-for-all decision. It's a moment-by-moment struggle where we are warring against and fighting against the world that is trying to seduce us and woo us away from intimacy with Jesus and fellowship with Him and entangle us in the things of this world. And Paul says, in an ongoing way, live a life of moment-by-moment repentance. And what he's saying here is do so quickly. John Eldridge, in his book that many of you are reading right now, The Utter Relief of Holiness, listen to what he said. Repent quickly. The sooner the better. For one thing, you do not want to lose your intimacy with God. For another, you know the enemy is going to jump all over you when you blow it. And you don't want to get hammered by that for days, weeks, months, or years. That's where some of you are living. You're allowing the enemy to wear you out. He says, also, you are after freedom. And the longer you wait to repent, the deeper a hold sin gets in you. Repent quickly. Moment by moment, you and I. So what does that look like? Well, well, there are really three words. I want to give them to you. Number one is confess. Confess. If you and I are living in this world and we begin to take our lives off the altar, we begin to think things or do things or practice things that aren't what God would have for us, it's not the holiness of who we are. Listen, don't let the enemy wear you out with that. Immediately, right then, right there, when the Spirit of God brings it up, confess it. Say, what does confess mean? The Greek word is homologeo. It means to say the same thing. Here's what it means. It means to agree with God. Say, God, you're right and I'm wrong. Lord, this isn't what you have for me. Just drag it out in the light. Get honest about it. Lord, that's not the attitude I should have had. God, that didn't reflect you at all. God, that's not the thought about that person that I should have had. Lord, that's, that's not why you made them. God, I, I confess that that's not your will for me. Just drag it out there. Get honest with God about it. Agree. Confess. Here's the second word. Renounce. Renounce. To renounce is to formally declare one's abandonment of. Here's what that means. It's an attitude of faith that says, God, that's not who I am anymore. Lord, that may be who I used to be, but in Christ, that is not who I am anymore. So, Lord, I drag that out in the light. I confess it. God, I'm being honest. I know that's not your will for me. God, I know that's not the way you want me to think. God, I know that's not what you want me to do. And, God, I know that that is not who I am in Jesus anymore. I've been set free from that. God, you have something better for me than that. And, Lord, I renounce it. I abandon that by faith right now. Here's what John Eldred said. He said, it's not on the screen, but listen to this. Do not look to your emotions or experience to determine whether or not this is true. You start by accepting the truth as told you by the living God. Then you will discover it playing itself out in your life. 
Don't let your emotions and experience tell you, oh, that is who you are. No, 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 no. That's not who you are anymore. And by faith, you lay hold of that. And as you begin to walk in that, God will begin to give you victory. Now, here's the third word. Confess, renounce, embrace. Embrace God's forgiveness. Embrace God's forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins. Look at this verse. If we confess our sins, he is what? He's faithful. Did it tell us there to ask forgiveness? No. We've been forgiven. He said if we'll just get honest and drag it out there, he's faithful. He'll forgive it. But look at this. Not only will he forgive our sin, he'll cleanse us from all the stuff we don't even know about yet. How much different would it be if you and I acknowledge the struggle moment by moment throughout the day when we have that thought, when we do that wrong thing, instead of letting that, oh, I'm not a good Christian. Oh, and that's going to wear me out all day and tomorrow. I can't even spend time with God because I feel so bad about yesterday. And, you know, I'm probably not even going to go to church this weekend because they're all right and I'm all wrong. And how about instead of that, in the moment, You just stop right then, right there, and say, God, that's not right. I confess it. I drag it out before you, and I'm honest about it, Lord. I know that's not who I am in Christ anymore. God, I embrace your forgiveness, and now I'm moving on, Lord. I'm moving past that because holy is who I am, and holy is what I'm becoming. And we just begin to live moment by moment, not being conformed to this world. But there's a second side to it. He says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, this is interesting. Transformed is a very different word than conform. Conformed is being changed from the outside in. It's things on the outside that are influencing us and wooing us and leading us. Transformed is not outside in. Guess what it is? It's inside out. It's the Greek word metamorpho. We get the word metamorphosis from it. It's a change down on the inside that then produces change on the outside. And it's interesting here, it's in the passive voice. Here's what that means. Transformation is not something I do to myself. Transformation is something that He does in me. Don't be conformed. Don't let this world fit you into its mold. Live moment by moment in repentance before God. Dragging out in the light. Embracing His forgiveness. But here's what you need to do. Don't let the world. Let God change you from the inside out. How does that happen? He tells us by the renewing of your mind. Clyde's book, here's what he said. Transformation is God's work alone. Yet it hinges on something we must do. We must behold. Or focus intently on all that is glorious about Christ. In response, God performs His supernatural work of transforming our very lives. You know what this means? As Jesus followers, there needs to be a daily time that is a priority in my schedule when I allow God to fix my heart 
on him. Listen to me, child of God. If you're going to walk in holiness, there is no substitute for time alone with Jesus in his word. There's no shortcut. There's no three-step program. Time alone with Jesus in his word, allowing him to renew your mind. To change you from the inside out. Can I be transparent again this morning? My ability to walk daily in practical holiness rises and falls based on my time alone with Jesus in His Word. When I'm spending time with Jesus, when I am much with Him, when I am setting my thoughts on things that are higher, when I'm allowing God to fill my mind with His Word, holiness just seems to be the pattern and practice of my life. When I am not much with Jesus, when I'm not in His Word, alone with Him, you know what I find? Holiness is hard. If you're not going to walk in practical holiness, there's a daily surrender that must take place. And there's a daily struggle that will take place. I'll close with this quote by Francis Paget. He wrote a book called The Spirit of the Discipline in the 1800s. This is what he said. Do not think that what your thoughts dwell upon is of no matter. Your thoughts are making you. We are two men. What is seen and what is not seen. But the unseen is the maker of the other. Daily surrender. Daily struggle. Let's walk in holiness.